We're having Bible class tonight, but there will not be any Bible class this coming Thursday night, day after tomorrow, because um, many of us, in fact, if I look out on the congregation, I realize that quite a few have already left today to go up to the pre-trib conference, which starts in the morning, and I will be leaving within moments of saying amen uh, to drive up late this evening. So we will not be here on Thursday night for Bible class because of the pre-trib conference. Also, uh, next Sunday, we will this coming Sunday, we'll have uh, our Christmas luncheon following the morning worship service, and then we'll also have a children's dedication during the uh, morning worship service. And so there are sign-up sheets out in the fellowship hall. And then on Christmas Eve... We will have uh, a, a Christmas Eve communion service that will begin at 7 o'clock. So we changed up the schedule so folks can uh, get home and have some family time uh, following, the, uh, following the service. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be, to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord. And he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we open God's word up this evening, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. Make sure we're walking by the Spirit. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to come before your throne of grace because the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty. It is his death on the cross that caused the veil to be split wide open so that we have direct access to you. And Father, we're so grateful for the forgiveness of sin. We're grateful for eternal life. We're grateful to have a a personal, intimate relationship with you because of what Christ did for us. Father, we thank you for your word that guides and directs us and difficult issues of life, and sometimes we expect the Bible to say one thing or another, but we need to carefully study the Word to understand uh, what you have revealed to us. And we pray that tonight as we continue this study on the importance of life, and that you would help us to understand what your Word says and reveals. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last time we began to study the topic be a three-night, three-week three special last week, this week, and next week, looking at what the Bible teaches about the value, the significance, the importance of human life. This is a huge question. It always comes up and has since 1973 in the d- decision on Roe v. Wade as to when life begins and the value of life. And as I pointed out last time, that there is... a considerable amount of confusion that most people don't think there is if you listen to uh, the the uh, the statements that are made from opposing political sides and from certain evangelical leaders uh, they don't realize that this is um, really a matter of great question because the positions have hardened and solidified over the last 40 years and 
very few people go back and really ask the hard questions of what the Word of God is saying. So last time I started off and I said there's, uh, we'd look at three questions. What's the defining issue? Second question is what is the historical background on this topic in Orthodox or Talmudic Judaism? And then third, what's the historical background? How, has, how did the early church answer this question, and how has the church answered this question uh, down through the centuries? And to do that, I started off with a qu- lengthy quote from Dr. Harold O.J. Brown, who was an emeritus professor, distinguished professor, honored professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I pointed out that he was... He had four earned degrees from Harvard. He had Fulbright Scholarship, studied in Europe. Academically, he's at the top of of his profession. He was very much against abortion. He was very pro-life. He was incensed at the Roe v. Wade decision. And because of his influence, a number of evangelical leaders that you might not think had originally been in favor of the Roe v. Wade decision were swayed by his influence. Now, the reason I say that is not to extol him, because I pointed out several flaws with his with an article he wrote in 1993, but he points out what the fundamental question is, and that's what's on the slide up here. He said, the question of insolment, that's the issue. When is there full human life? It's when the soul is in the unborn baby. When does that happen? And he makes it very clear that is the most important issue. But he also makes clear in that quote that science can't tell you when that happens. You can only know that from the Word of God. And then he says the question of insolment cannot be answered scripturally as the scripture makes no reference to the process at all. Now, I pointed out that he's wrong. It do, I think it clearly does, but a lot of people don't think this through. They have just assumed the answer to the question without really getting into the deep exegetical issues involved, and they often leap to unfounded conclusions. It's a highly emotional question for a lot of people, and so we have to step back and not be emotional but think about what the Word of God says and what it doesn't say. So this was the fundamental issue. That was the first question. And I pointed out that what he's saying is, number one, whatever is in the womb is human. Okay? It, he would argue that there, he's aware of the position that the soul is not present until birth, but he still, even there, he would still say whatever is in the womb is human. And that is very important. Somehow, in some, the way some people have spoken, that is lost. And it is still truly human, if, even if possibly it is not fully human. Second, Scripture cannot answer the question as to the timing of insolment. That's what he said, and I disagree with him wholeheartedly. I think Scripture makes it very clear, as we'll see tonight. And then third... We don't want the government or the courts attempting to decide the time of insolment apart from revelation. That is what makes this so complicated. If we can't determine when the soul is present by the various metrics of empiricism, 
You can't determine it in the laboratory. People say, well, the heart's beating at this point. Yes, that's physical. The brain is doing, responding this way. Yes, the brain is physical. But how do you know the soul is there? That has been the question all along. So the, that's what he's focusing on. Then I looked at the historical background, and I had a lengthy quote from the Cyclopedia of Judaism where the authors of that quote talked about Talmudic Judaism, had a lot of quotes from the Talmud and from the Mishnah, showing that the historic Orthodox Jewish position is that the embryo is not considered a person, a nefesh, that's hayah nefesh, a living soul, that's from uh, Genesis chapter 2, is not considered a nefesh until birth. Now that's interesting. At birth is when you have the first breath. So that is the historic position of Judaism. Now, of course, today many American Jews do not believe that. They believe the, the strict liberal position on, uh, on um, what goes on in the womb is just tissue, like appendix, like tonsils, and you can rid yourself of it, like clipping fingernails. But that's not true. We know this from DNA, that what is in the womb is not extraneous tissue. It is human tissue with all of the information needed to develop a full human being. It is a human being in process, whether the soul is there or not. And so the historic position of Judaism was that no one had the right to interfere with what God had begun in building a human being. And even if the soul is not there and it's not a person until birth, nevertheless, you don't mess with it. It is only God has the right to end that, that pregnancy. And just as a side point, just to give you something to think about, there's a big debate over wh when... The embryo when the uh, child in the womb becomes a person, and that's a legal term. We're not talking about uh, any, anything else that may come to your mind. It's a legal term. Let me give you one instance, uh, a couple of things. First of all, at no time in all of human history has any government, any legal system ever recognized legal rights for a, uh, a child in the womb. It hasn't been there. If somebody knows of an instance, they can let me know, but it's never been there. And let me give you an example of a problem. We have a huge problem around the world today, not just here. There have been problems with illegal immigrants going into the southern border of Israel. Of course, they fixed it. You know how they fixed it? They built a wall, and it worked. Okay? You have all kinds of mass illegal immigration going into Europe, you have mass illegal immigration coming into the United States. This is a big problem. The question of citizenship, question of borders, things that we all thought were settled are questions that radicals on the left bring up all the time. One of the issues in citizenship is whether there's such a thing as birthright citizenship. I think the United States and one other country, or two other countries, I think there's a small number, are the only ones that still have birth citizenship. Everybody else has gone to something different. So we have these babies that are born here. Pregnant mother gets across the border, has a baby in, on this side of the border, and then that baby's a U.S. citizen because they're born here. 
citizenships determined by where you're born. However, if you have a legal system that were to treat the child in the womb as a fully legal person and entity from conception, then it wouldn't matter where you're born, it matters where you're conceived. Now, we don't want to get off into trying to answer that question. We just need to be aware of the fact that that by declaring the child in the womb a fully legal person, you enter into a huge, huge mare's nest of problems. It just it, 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 it increases the complication of all the issues a thousandfold. So that was the, but the Jewish position, I believe, is the historic biblical accurate position, and I'm demonstrating that in these uh, three Bible classes. The historical background of the church, there were three views. The first view was really a throwaway view because most it came right out of paganism. Most Christians didn't hold to it, but there were some early church fathers who held to it, and that's the came right out of paganism that all souls pre-exist. And that means that, that they've, all souls of everybody have existed from eternity past and then when God created them before Genesis 1 and then when a baby is born he puts that soul in the baby and there's pre-existence that's also foundational for reincarnation that's been was always rejected uh, by the orthodox in Christianity then we looked at traditionism the idea that the soul is generated and passed on physically and Third, uh, the view of creationism, that God creates and simultaneously imparts a soul at the instant of birth. And so that's we're looking at both of those. So the big question is, is the soul passed from one generation to another by procreation, physical, sexual procreation, or does God create each soul directly or and <clears throat> immediately? Now, in that, basically in the history of Christianity, there's only two views, okay? Only two views, one or the other. Take your pick. You can't kind of mush them all together. The first view is called traditionism from the Latin word meaning to transfer, transferring soul from parents to child. And this view teaches that the material body and the immaterial soul, although originally in Tertullian's view, it's not an immaterial soul, it's a material soul. He was a materialist, the soul was material. So traditionism was the idea that the soul is generated and passed on through sexual procreation. William G.T. Shedd was a very famous mid-19th century um, Presbyterian theologian. And he wrote in his dogmatic theology, that's the older term for systematic theology, creationism has been the most common view during the last two centuries. Okay, so that's going back to the early 1600s. Creationism has been the most common view during the last two centuries. As a matter of fact, it was the most common view much earlier than that, but he was talking within the context of Reformed theology because he was a, Presby he was a Presbyterian. Now, one of the things, objections, that you'll hear people bring to those of us who are creationists is that that gives justification to abortion. That's irrational, and it's not historically accurate. 
It is a completely false conclusion. And my evidence for it is that if William G.T. Shedd is correct, and there's no reason that he's not, that the vast majority, almost all Reformed theologians from the Reformation to the mid-1800s held to creationism, how many of them advocated for abortion? How many of them thought abortion was justified and a good idea? How many of them promoted it? Not one. In the early church, this was the dominant view as well, and you did, and the church was always against abortion. Always, always, always. So it's a non sequitur. That means it's a conclusion that doesn't follow. Okay? But we have to understand, and that's what I'm focusing on, what does the Bible say about the origin of the soul? Now, Thomas Aquinas was a, and is still considered to be the systematic theologian of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, that's the school for whom the University of St. Thomas here in Houston is, uh, is named. And they have a philosophy department that is the Center for Thomistic Studies. That's the study of, of uh, Tom, St. Thomas's, uh, St. Aquinas's uh, philosophy. Okay? That's where I went and got a master's degree in medieval philosophy. So... He makes a statement. I have it underlined here. He says, Therefore, to hold that the intellectual soul is caused by the begetter is nothing else than to hold the soul to be non-subsistent and consequently to perish with the body. It is therefore heretical to say that the intellectual soul is transmitted with the semen. That is a really powerful statement. He rejected traditionism as pure heresy. Now, creationism is the other view, and that's the view that only the body is generated physically and the soul is directly created by God. And hence, for creationists, the body is created by God indirectly through sexual procreation, and the soul is created directly by God at the instant of birth through the first breath. So the starting point, we looked at this last time in Genesis 2-7. And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So this pictures God as, uh, as a craftsman, as a potter. And he takes the dust of the ground, the dirt from the ground, the soil, the clay, and he works it, and he forms and shapes, because the word... For formed is the word yatser, which is used of a potter uh, shaping the pottery on the potter's wheel. He's forming man of the dust of the ground. And then after he has completely built this body, and I want you to think about this. He's not making a baby. He's not starting with uh, an embryo. He's not starting with a zygote. He's starting with a fully formed human body. So Adam is six, seven feet tall. He's got two legs, two arms. He's got two eyes, two ears, nose and a mouth. He's got hair. Everything is built by God and shaped by God from the dust to the ground. 
in that one day, probably in just uh, a, a few moments. It didn't take God long to, to form that body. And that body has no cell life. Nothing has been animated yet at that point. God has just built the body. And then God breathes into the body. And the whole body, the biological life, the cell life, everything gets animated instantly at the same time that the soul comes into the body. So last time I ended by saying and asking the question, does God use the same process? Is it the same thing? And no, it's not. But there are similarities and there are differences. And what you read when you read those who superficially critique the creationist position is that they just say, well, it's not the same, as if everything is not the same. Creationists are not saying everything is the same. They're saying there's one thing that's the same, and that is the breath that God breathed out that animates the biological life, the human biological life, the body, so that it becomes a living soul. But the process clearly clearly is different. When a new human is formed in the womb, it begins with conception where the egg is fertilized by the uh, sperm and it becomes a zygote that develops into a blastocyst. And then as the embryo develops, then it develops into the early form of the child. Before long, you begin to see that which will become the head, you see that which will become the arms, that which will become the legs, and then it takes on more and more shape. And as that happens, the, the nerves are built and developed, the circulatory system, the respiratory system, all these different ser- systems begin to uh, work and to, d- to develop. And over time, God is involved in this process. We'll see scripture to, that relates to that. God begins in that that process, and the heart begins to beat. The circulatory system begins to work. The uh, neurological pathways are created so that uh, pleasure, pain can be felt. And all of this is all biological. It's all mechanical, as it were, uh, within the womb. It takes nine months before that uh, child in the womb is ready to come out, okay? It takes time. Now, that did, God didn't use a lot of time. He didn't take nine months to build Adam's body. It took less than, you know, less than a, probably five or ten minutes. Did it very rapidly on the sixth day, of, uh, sixth day of creation. But after he had made all the connections, built all the, everything, made everything ready to go, he breathes quickly, just, and it comes to life. There's a soul there, and all of the functions work instantly. There are no problems. So we're told that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. That's the first thing that happens. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That is a key phrase. It is the breathing into the nostrils, the breath of life, which is the Hebrew word neshama, that energizes everything so that man became a living being or a living soul. The word there is nefesh, which is what I refer to when I was reading the article from the Encyclopedia uh, of Judaism. 
that at that point becomes a living thing. But it, in the womb, see, there was no life there at all as he's making Adam. But in the womb, there's life there. This is not something that's dead, maybe mother-dependent, but it's, it's living tissue. It's living cells. We know that from everything we study with DNA and everything else. It is a human being in process. It's not, it, it's not some other kind of biological life. It is human biological life. You can check the DNA, and the DNA is human. It is not non-human. But we have to determine when life begins, and life began for Adam at the instant that God breathed into him and he became a living being. That's Adam's birthday. Sometimes when I've taught on the chronology and we've looked at, uh, at, the, at, at the genealogies, where Adam lived to be, I forget the exact number, near 970 years of age, 969 years old, something like that. So that's not from the fall. That's not when Adam began to live. He lived 969 years, but he, some of that was in, our, in Eden. might have been the first year or two or three. It might not have been that long. It might have been the first 20 or 30 years. We don't know, but it was pretty short because uh, Cain is born when he's about 100, uh, I think 120, something like that. I don't remember the exact number. So Adam wasn't, and Adam and Eve were not living in paradise in Eden for more than uh, about a hundred and probably ten or fifteen years. All right. So what we have here is the formation of the human biological life plus human soul life is full human life. Now, when does the human soul get there? That's the question that uh, Harold O. J. Brown is asking. How do we determine that? He says the Bible doesn't tell us. Well, that's leaving something pretty important out if the Bible doesn't give us some clues. So the question that I was, uh, would have for you is how would you go about proving or demonstrating biblically what the parameters of life are? What would you look for? You know, one of the things that you often hear is that life begins at conception and ends at death. It's conception to death. Do we have that kind of phraseology in the Bible? What are the parameters of life? Is it birth to death? Is it conception to death? And how would you go about demonstrating that? What are the, what's the evidence that you would look for? And last time I pointed out that one of the way, things you need to look for is the use of this term neshema. It goes all through the Old Testament again and again and again. God identifies human beings in terms of those who are breathing. If you're not breathing, there's no wind, there's no breath, you're dead. Sunday morning I mentioned James 4, where James talks about if there's no... It's usually translated spirit, but the word in, in, in the scripture for spirit is pneuma, which can also mean breath. And so it's almost always translated spirit, and James says, if there's no spirit, there's no life. The body's dead. Makes much better sense biologically to say, to translate that, if there's no breath, there's no life. There, you have to have oxygen, you have to breathe in order for there to be life. So you have many passages. I went through more last week. I just want to remind you of a couple of them. Isaiah 2.22 
Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? This is uh, nefesh. I mean, excuse me, neshema. He's, this breath of life is what animates man. Isaiah 42.5, Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it. Who gives breath? God gives breath. Every breath we take comes from God. God gives breath. God stops giving breath, we die. And spirit, ruach, which is parallel to pneuma in the New Testament. Spirit to those who walk in it. So God is the one who gives breath. It's not an EEG. It's not an EKG. It's not the beating of the heart. It's not brain activity. It is breath that the Bible talks about. It could easily talk about the beating of the heart. It could easily talk about thinking. It doesn't. It's breath. Isaiah 57, 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of those whom I have made. God is speaking, and again, he is the one who creates this breath, this neshema. And then Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit which is Ruach, will return to God who gave it. That is very, very clear. The Ruach, the spirit, or goes back to God. Or you could translate that even, and the breath will return to God who gave it. So God is the one who gives this spirit. How did God give the spirit to Adam so that he became Nefesh Hayah? It's through breath. You don't find anything else in the scripture. So you have you do have people, and I read read all these articles, and they they dismiss this. That's a logical fallacy. Well, that's wrong. Well, what's right? Well, they don't answer. They don't say, well, look at what the Bible says as an alternative. You don't find it. What you find is people like Harold O.J. Brown who says, well, the Bible doesn't tell us. So the only thing he can go by is physiological functions. So then I said, some passages suggest God uses an indirect means to create physical life. That is, it's indirect or mediate. It is through sexual procreation. But a direct means for soul life. He's the one who gives that, that soul, that ruach. Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. That's a pretty clear statement. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. By the time the breath comes, that's at birth. Again, Ecclesiastes 2, 12, 7. I think those are some of the strongest verses. Then we read the next, the question I ask at the end of that. Does God continue the same pattern of creation of life? And I've answered that some more tonight. Does God still have one process for generating the material part of man and another process for generating the immaterial part of man? And I think, I think it's clear that, that you have the one process in the womb for creating the physical part of man, and then at birth this is when the soul is imparted. But that doesn't mean that what's in the womb is anything less than human. 
So the next question is, when does God impart the soul? Is it at conception? Is it at some time during the nine months of gestation? Or is it at birth? Those are the three alternatives. And if we reject traditionism, we're left to one of these. And you get different people who take different, different views as you come along. So this brings us to this question. When does that, how are we going to answer this question? What evidence do, are we looking for in the scripture? Does the scripture say statements like from conception to death? Does the Bible make statements from birth to death? How does the Bible talk about conception? How does the Bible talk about birth? So let's start off talking about birth. Birth is a noun. It is usually used in the Old Testament with a preposition. Um, from birth, you'll find that language. How many times, and if you look through an English Bible, you will find different translations will handle the Hebrew differently. Uh, Hebrew usually uses the same language, but sometimes they will translate it from the womb, sometimes they will translate it from birth. It is, it's how you come to understand this, this usage. So the presuppositions of the translators comes into play here. And when we just talk in English and we have a, the statement from birth, it's a prepositional phrase. It is made up of a preposition, the word from, and then it is the noun for birth. In Hebrew, there is no noun for birth. Thus, when you have to express the prepositional phrase, you use me beten, which means from the womb. Beten is one word for womb. Racham is another word for womb. Racham is often also used for um, compassion. And sometimes it's translated from the bowels. But racham, racham and beten are synonyms for, for the womb, as you see in Psalm 22.10 and Psalm 58. 58 verse verse 4. Now, as I was working through this today, uh, I discovered that there actually is a Hebrew, I've been doing this for 20 years, I found it today. There is actually a noun for birth. It is ledeh. But it's translated, probably the best translation is childbirth. So even though it is the, the word for a child is yelled, so this is the, the noun leda that is related to that. And it's translated childbirth in Jeremiah thirteen twenty one, and it's used two other places that are not consistently translated. But that's the best thing. But it's only used three times, and it's not used with a preposition. Okay, so it doesn't really relate to the argument that I'm, uh, or, or the, the case that I'm building here. Job one twenty one. Job says, Naked I came literally from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So naked I came from my mother's womb. He's using that as the beginning point. He's not saying I was conceived. He doesn't talk about that. He uses this language, mebeten. Uh, Men is the Hebrew word, preposition for from. Betin is the Hebrew word for womb. When you put them together, because the M-I-N 
comes right before a hard consonant, the B, you drop the N, and so it's just me betting. Same thing with me reckon. So Job says in Job 3.11, why did I not die at birth? He doesn't say, why wasn't there a miscarriage? He says, why did I not die at birth? Merechem, and it's parallel to the phrase, come forth from the womb, mebetan. Now, I pointed out last time, I pointed out here that you, and I went through a number of different um, di- different translations today and last week, eight different times in the Old Testament. Mebetan is translated in the King James as from the womb. Many other places, I mean, excuse me, from birth. Many other places it's translated from the womb. The NIV comes along and it also translates mebetan as from birth, but not in the same verses where the King James translated it that way. In other words, this seems to be an idiom meaning from birth. Now the reason it's an I will talk about the reason for that in just a minute. Job ten nineteen, I should have been I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. So here's the parameters. From the womb to the tomb. If from the womb is from birth, then he's saying the parameters are from birth to death. He's not talking about from conception to death. And what I'm going to point out is there is a noun for conception in the Hebrew language. But it's not ever used in any of these places. He could say, because the, the, the Hebrew word for conception is heryon. He, you'd never find that. It's not just like, oh, well, it's used once or twice. No, it's never used in this kind of a context. It's always mebetan. And mebetan is not in the womb. That would be the Hebrew preposition ba. It would be babetan. Babetan is in the womb. This is not babetan. It is mebetan. Psalm 22.9, Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Psalm 22.10 repeats that language. Upon you I was cast from birth. Me reckon from the womb or from birth. And this is how it's translated, as from birth uh, in the King James, New King James. You have been carried, you have been my God from my mother's womb. Okay, and so that's got to be parallel. It's talking about the same thing. Uh, The wicked are estranged from the womb or from birth. Those who speak lies go astray from, from birth in the second line. So from birth is parallel to from the womb. Isaiah 44, 2. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Uh, do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. And here we have, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, or from birth. So it's talking about after birth, God's involvement in Israel. It's using this analogy. Israel as a nation is given, gives birth to Israel. It's not talking about the conception. I think if we were to lay this out, conception is what happens when God calls Abraham. The birth of the nation is the Exodus event. And he's using this analogy of birth and says, and God says, I formed you from the womb. That would be from, from your birth at 
at the Exodus when I gave you the Mosaic law. Isaiah 44, 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, from birth. It's after the birth. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all along. So in, in Hebrew, you have a verb for birth. You don't have a noun for birth. The verb for birth is yelled. Uh, yelled means to bear, begat, bring forth, and, um, and there's, on, there's no noun for birth. Then today I discovered there is a noun used three times. It's translated the childbirth, and it is not used in any passage related to time, you know, from X to Y. I came forth from, it's not used that way. It's only used three times, and neither of them, it's just talking about childbirth with no preposition in front of it. Now, the word conceive, the verb is hara. This is Eve in Genesis 4.1. I conceived, it's a verb, it's the action. I conceived, and later I conceived and gave Gave birth, bore child. And that phrase is used nine or ten times in Genesis. Uh, So-and-so conceived and gave birth. They're not the same thing. Conception is what happens at the beginning of the process, and giving birth is what happens at the end of the process. The process is the nine-month gestation period. So the verb is hara, and the noun is haryon which means conception or pregnancy. So if you wanted to say from birth in Hebrew, you really don't have a word for it. You have the word from, but you don't have the noun for birth. You have a noun for conception. If life begins at conception, then the question is, why does the Bible always use the phrase from birth And it never, ever, ever, even one time uses the phrase from conception. It has the the vocabulary. The language is available. Why does that not, not ever occur? Neither of these words for conceive is used for the parameters of life. The Septuagint translate the adjective of the of this word with the phrase engastri. That's, you know, like uh, your um, a gastric system. That's where we get that. It's from your, your, your belly or from your, from your womb. And it translates it um, as something in as opposed to from. Now, let's look at some biblical verses for the parameters of life. So a lot of these we've already seen, but now we're going to see looking at them from a, for a slightly different reason. Ecclesiastes 3.2, a time to give birth and a time to die. Now some people say, well, see, this isn't, this isn't talking about, you can't make a case for this. On any single one verse, maybe you can't make a case. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of verses that state this, and there's no verses that state the alternative. That is how you make a case. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. So the parameter is birth and death. 
Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. You do not have the statement, a child will be conceived. A child will be born to us. Even in the statement in, in Isaiah seven fourteen, that a, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. But it is not giving conception, is not being... Uh, pointed out as the time she will conceive and give birth to a son. That's the normal process. Job 14.1, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. He doesn't say man who is conceived in a woman. He could say that, but he doesn't. Job 15.14, what is man that he should be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? See, he could say who is conceived in a woman. He's got all the vocabulary for it, but he doesn't say that. Job thirty-eight twenty-one. you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Job one twenty-one. he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. So the, the emphasis is on coming from the womb. Job three eleven. why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb, and expire? Dying at birth, coming forth from the womb, and expiring. If the soul is fully present in the womb, then why did I not die in the womb? Why was there not a miscarriage? He, he has to be born in order to be him, in order to be fully him. You know, physiologically, he was Job in the womb. Physiologically, when you were in your mother's womb, you were you. You weren't somebody else, but you weren't fully there yet. Job 10.18, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. Okay, six, other important scriptures. Now we'll get to John the Baptist next time, but I'll put this up here. Matthew 11.11 states, Truly I say to you, among those born of women... There's not a risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Over and over and over and over again, it is born, 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 birth, 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 born. That's it. It's never conception. Other important scriptures, Isaiah 2.22, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. Emphasizing the breath of life because that seems to be when the Bible points out that the person becomes fully alive. Isaiah fifty-seven sixteen. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of those whom I have made. Now the next point, point seven. A couple of these are going to be real quick. No verse anywhere gives the parameters of life as conception to death. I think that's important. If we're going to go to battle in the streets and in the courts and argue that it is from conception to death, which is what one side does, why do you not have one single reference to that in the Bible? That's a really important question, and nobody seems to want to talk about it because all the metrics that are used on, on the life in the womb all are talking about the mechanics of the biology. Yes, the child in the womb feels pain, but is the soul there? 
that just tells you that that the electrical systems and the nervous systems all work. It doesn't tell you there's a soul there. And let me tell you, all of this technology we have today was clearly there when um, when Harold O.J. Brown was writing in 93. And when he was writing in 93, he doesn't say, ah, we know when the soul is there because we've got DNA, we've got... We can measure the fetal heart beat. We can do all these things. If he, he never says that. He said, we don't know when the soul shows up. Now, he says the Bible doesn't tell us, and I'm showing you that he's wrong. But here's a guy who is one of the foremost advocates against abortion. And he says he ignores what science has. Science does not tell us what the soul. He's accurate. He's honest. And so many are not. They don't want to face that. Eighth point. In the New Testament, you have this these words, ek koilia. Ek is parallel to men. It means from. Koilia is the Greek for womb, same as beton, or ek gastros. But they're used by Jewish writers who are using, a, using them as a Semitic idiom. In fact, you have places where the number of other uh, trans- number of translations will translate these phrases in the Greek and in the Hebrew as uh, from as from birth. So, I had a list here somewhere. I did put this together today that there are a number of. A number of uh, the contemporary English version, the message, uh, all of these come along at different times and in different ways uh, will translate these as from birth. So across the spectrum of good, bad, and indifferent translations, at different places, the scholars who translated these translated it from birth. So that's a legitimate means of, of translating that, that phrase. Then the ninth point, I think this is an important point. In John 3, Jesus, I'm Nick, Jesus does not say you must be conceived again. He says you must be born again. The beginning of the new life is a spiritual birth. The beginning of the new life is not spiritual conception. The word birth again and again is used consistently to refer to the beginning of this stage. And then on the 10th point, this will be my last last point. We'll come back and expand this more because there are a lot of verses and I really want to spend some time on this. The value of human biological life within the womb. David says in Psalm 139, 13, for you formed my inward parts. Now, God may form the inward parts through the DNA. He may form those inward parts, who we are in the womb, uh, indirectly through all of the procedures and mechanisms biologically that he has created. But that doesn't mean he is remotely involved. He is he is still very much present and involved. You form my inward parts. And when, I, when we come back next time, I will have a list of these. There are dozens and dozens of these verses 
that talk about God forming life in the womb. If God is that intricately and intimately involved in the formation of human biological life in the womb, what gives anyone the right to stop it? God's deeply involved. Again and again we see this. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, God says. See, God says, I formed you in the womb. I knew you. That's God's omniscience. That doesn't mean that Jeremiah had yet become a person. It's just that God knows he will be. He's intimately involved in the formation of human biological life in the womb. And he says, before you were born, I sanctified you. That doesn't mean that Jeremiah was saved before he was even in the womb. It is God using a prophetic uh, a prophetic future, our, our, our prophetic, excuse me, prophetic past. And this is something that is so certain. God could say, I will form you in the womb. But if he speaks of something in the future as if it has already happened, that emphasizes its absolute certainty. It can't be said stronger that this is what's going to happen. So God in his omniscience knows that Jeremiah's parents are going to have relations, and as a result of that, that there's going to be the development in his mother's womb, and that this uh, biological life is going to reach its nine-month maturity and will be born, and then God will breathe into him uh, the soul that will become Jeremiah, and eventually Jeremiah uh, will become a believer. But it doesn't mean that he is spiritually set apart and becomes a believer before he's ever in his, in his mother's, mother's womb. So there are many other passages, and the value of those passages is that they emphasize God's intimately involved in the womb. And so this is why this position is not one that should ever be used to justify abortion. It is not a position that um, that, that should be politicized it, like uh, Mayor Pete tried to do. It is a position that is talking about how God formed each of us. And what that means is that every human being is important and valuable because God is intimately involved in every single womb. He is forming that biological life. That's part of his process. That means that's one of the reasons we say every human being is important. Everybody counts. And And everybody counts because of God's involvement in that life. And if there are factors, biological, chemical, whatever, where that physical life that's being developed isn't going to function right, it, it, it's not going to work, then what happens is you ha- that's when you have a miscarriage. It hasn't come together correctly. And some of you may have uh, gone through that process where you've had a miscarriage or you know somebody, and this, this can be an emotional time. And But it is, as I've heard doctors explain it, it happens because the biological life isn't going to function and it's not going to be a healthy home for a soul. So we'll come back next time. We'll finish out looking at the value of, of the biological life in the womb. And then from there, I want to look at some of the uh, passages, such as John the Baptist, a few other passages that are presented as as a problem passages. We've got a passage in 
what passage we studied recently in Psalm 51, where David talks about the fact that I was conceived in iniquity. And so some people take it the idea that this is, this indicates that, you know, he's a sinner in the womb. I don't have a problem with that if you understand what it means to be a sinner. We're sinners not because we sin. See, for a lot of Christians, they say, oh, well, if you're a sinner in the womb, then that means you've sinned. No, that's not true. You're a sinner because you are descendant from Adam, and from the very beginning, there's that transmission of the sin nature. And so from the beginning, you're just, you're corrupted by Adam's original sin, and so you're conceived in sin. So we'll talk about that more uh, when we come back, but we'll uh, close in prayer right now. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this. Help us to think through these issues and do justice to what your word says, not to get caught up in emotion, but be caught up with the truth of your word, the consistency that we find in all of these scriptures. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things in Christ's name. Amen.